Hello, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good day. Um, it is Friday, 22nd of November, and we are at episode number 30. Yep. Big 3-0. <laughs> People get Come fr- a long way. People get freaked out by um, birthdays with zeros at the end. Mm. But you wouldn't know much about that. You haven't had many birthdays with zeros at the end. I've got one coming up next year. I've got one. Oh, I'll see if I'm scared by that one. You see if you have a midlife crisis. Yep. Turning uh, 60. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter, co-founders of 89N, home of Managed Flitter, home of CheckDog, home of... Uh, all interesting products that help you with uh, all sorts of bits and pieces. But uh, we don't come on this podcast to talk about our products. We come on this podcast to talk about everything relating to tech, everything relating to the tech economy. Remember, you can email us at um, podcast at itsamonkey.com. We love your e- uh, email. We love your tweets at monkey podcast. Got a great show coming up for you today. Um, later on in the show, we talk with Palmy Olson, who's a technology writer for Forbes magazine based in Silicon Valley. And she is also the author of We Are Anonymous. And she wrote a great piece on messaging apps. The messaging app space is blowing up at the moment with Instagram, not Instagram, Snapchat and WhatsApp and all these other ones I hadn't heard of. So we'll be talking to her about um, that in a little while. But as usual, we kick off with some of the tech news from the last couple of weeks. Um, James, uh, gaming consoles seems to be a few... uh, New releases. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been a very interesting fortnight. It's uh, both Microsoft and Sony have released their new consoles. Um, so it's been eight years since I think the PlayStation Three and Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty were released. So it's been a it's been a really long time in terms of console generations. And yeah, so it's quite a quite a big event. Both of them have whole new offerings um, that have you know are much more futuristic than than the old ones. Um, Microsoft's got out the Xbox One. And their whole thing is kind of this minority report type thing where you always have your uh, camera, the, the Kinect, looking at you. And it's all voice activated, so you're kind of sort of waving your hands and talking to it um, and kind of introducing this very different kind of interface. Yeah, so Microsoft's, uh, the idea that Microsoft are trying to put out there is that um, they really want to control the living room for consumers. And what they mean by that is, um, you know, your Xbox is basically on and it's the thing that controls your TV, it controls your your DVD player, it controls everything else. So it, it even does Skype as well. It's got this really cool thing where it can kind of detect who's in the room and if you're on Skype with somebody, it can kind of zoom in to the people who are talking, a bit like Google Hangouts. But, um, it detects who's in the room. Yeah, it detects who's in the room. So the other thing is it does... Like facial recognition. Yeah, facial recognition. So obviously you have user accounts, so you can actually just walk up to it and pick up a controller and it knows who you are and who that you're picking up the controller and it logs you in and you have all your data there already available. Um, so, I mean, it's it's all kind of like newish in a sense. So, like, what these technologies can do haven't necessarily been realized. But, yeah, having that kind of stuff where, like, uh, you know, your a computer just recognizes you as you walks in the room. It's a very sort of minority report, um, you know, far futuristic type stuff. And it's going to be very interesting to see where, where the technology goes. You know what's interesting? There's someone in the Valley that wrote an article once that every significant technology started out as a toy. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, and that's definitely the the way with these consoles. They definitely drive a lot of innovation. I mean, the Connect, the original Connect on the Xbox, drove a lot of very interesting new 
um, new technologies and it's used a lot in, in research these days, but this is kind of the next step or next step beyond that. And it's not even necessary what it does now. I mean, obviously it's, it's interesting in the current implementation, but if you look at the original Xbox 360 and the one that exists today, they're almost completely different devices because they're constantly upgraded, they've got new firmware, um, and they get new accessories and people get better at building for them. And it's almost, it, it, they look like basically different devices. And the difference between what you've got now with the Xbox Zero and the Xbox 360 isn't, isn't a huge difference compared to previous generations. Um, but over its lifespan, it will become significant again. It's kind of like you know restarting the counter again for everybody. Um, so yeah, it's all—it's not necessarily so much about the games this generation. It's more about the the consoles themselves, uh, at least at least on the Microsoft side, and um, and what that kind of holistic view can do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very different and interesting approach. What's the business model for Microsoft? Do they make money on selling the consoles? They make money on selling the consoles most of the time. Um, the economics is not always clear, um, but up front they, they, they almost always do. I'm pretty sure in this generation they'll make money up front. What, Sometimes what, what they do you mean lead. the economics are not always clear? Well, because people try and work out how much it costs them, and there are definitely times where right. consoles get launched and actually cost the, money more, or the company more money to produce the console than it does uh that they sell it for so so you think uh microsoft are lo lost lead and they just want to be in the game and it's they definitely did for the first few generations now because the cost has gone down of hardware that they, they they don't um they i'm pretty sure they don't for this generation they also make money off the actual games themselves and licensing them so ah, okay. they make money and they make money through their subscriptions on there there's netflix there's tons of stuff so it's like it's a huge money sink basically so they don't have to make money off the actual hardware although they 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 do um but they can keep the margins lower it's the it's the reason why these things cost you know five hundred dollars in microsoft's case and sort of four hundred dollars in, in the playstation cases because they're not they're not seeking to make all their profit on these things. They're actually quite expensive to build. It's, it's sort of the revenue that comes from the, the additional streams afterwards. The, the reason why I laughed is that, um, you know, only big companies can get away by building things where, you know... Well, the first, they, the first Xbox lost huge amounts of money, the yeah. whole thing. Like, they didn't actually make any of that money back. It, not, not even just the hardware itself, but the whole thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they, they did it there. You know, they're one of the you know that they, they are one of the the leading companies now they've they broken into that market and they maintain that position so yeah you have to give microsoft credit for their brute force style of business they they just throw money at a problem and <laughs> keep on throwing and keep on throwing and, and push and push too. and push yeah. and push and push and eventually they get somewhere well it, i mean it's a very interesting market for microsoft to be in like you know they don't really do entertainment but they're in the xbox like it's very it's very weird sort of uh, it doesn't sort of align with the rest of their business values i think it really comes down to um you know bill gates and the elite he really lo loved this stuff and it was kind of his sort of baby that he that he sat and got the xbox out there and he's not he's not involved in it these days but that was you know that was the whole generation of uh, genesis of this stuff so well it's run my um 1995 version of encarta <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> when did they? I think it was a couple of years ago they announced they're not producing Encarta anymore. <laughs> Long time coming. Uh, anyway, also also Sony released their their console as well, which um which which is less about all this stuff. They have very similar features. I mean, they're both you know doing everything similar these days. You know, it's all sort of about the video, but they're much more focused on on the games. But um, it's still very early days in both cases. There isn't anything really very exciting on either system, so it's not um. Um, the plen plenty will be bought and plenty have already been sold and it's going to be a big Christmas for both of them but um, it won't be until sort of next year that we see the really exciting stuff
Excuse- and I won't be getting either of them. Why not? Because <laughs> I'm going overseas. There's no point. It's uh, if I buy them, I'm not going to have a chance to use them. So, and it's better to wait anyway. Most you don't get the really good stuff coming out early on, and you get better versions of them. Like I think there are well, like three or four different SKUs of the PlayStation and 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 the Xbox that came out over the years. So they actually improve and get cheaper over time, and they still play the same stuff. So, and excuse my ignorance, but do you the games that you play are they multiplayer type games with people across the internet, or are they just? Uh, it very, very. I mean, there's all, there's everything you can imagine on these systems. I mean, in terms of me personally, no, I tend to play the more single player and um, defined lifetime type stuff because otherwise they can just take too long and I don't have enough enough time to play them. So I tend to play the the games that are sort of like ten eight hour experiences and you kind of can just get them over and done with and that's right. it. So that's my sweet spot. But there's and only the really good ones as well. Like what? Give me an example. There's one that came out recently called Last of Us, which is which is amazing, really really mm-hmm. good. It's kind of this narrative about um, uh, post-apocalyptic type things, zombies, you know, attacking the world. But it's really well done. It's uh, it's got an amazing storyline. That the narrative is just is just really really well written, and it kind of. Um, um, you know, the point where it kind of like you become really emotionally attached and there are some points where it really sort of tugs on the heartstrings and there's things that, um, you know, games can do on that front that you can't really do in any other entertainment medium because you don't have that sort of long-term um, uh, connection with the characters. I mean, you can kind of get it if you watch like really long series of TV shows or something you can kind of, you know, get a get a connection to the characters and know them really well, but with games it kind of happens on a different level because you're kind of there for much longer periods. Why, so. why don't they use games more um, in learning? I mean, it just seems like the, the, the way people get so involved and it just, uh, w- wouldn't there be a way that you can play a game and along the way without feeling like it's an educational game? I think that's a challenge. I mean, there's always been educational games. In fact, I think some of the first games ever played were educational games. Hangman. Yeah, well, yeah, that was in the early days, and I think th- there were like these things when I was a kid where it was like it was like a farm or something, and you clicked on stuff and you solved riddles and stuff, and it was educational. But it's very hard to fool people. Um, I think you know people can tell when they're being taught something, and and that takes away a lot of the fun. So it would be um, terrific if some. I mean, there's an opportunity there to have a game that is compelling. And, and hooks you in, but at the same time, th- through the experiences, through your learnings, through your mistakes, you're actually involving yourself in some, some skill or discourse or... Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's the, debatably, there, there are some games like that. There's something called Guitar, Guitar Hero that was really popular. Yeah. Um, and um, and you, you had to play that with like a big plastic guitar. Um, I suppose that's a good example, yeah. Well, the thing, thing is, it didn't actually really relate to real-world experience. And it didn't really teach like you to play a real you guitar. No, you can't be amazing on that and then go pick up a guitar and be amazing on the guitar. And there were some, you know, based on the popularity of that, some versions came out that really did teach you how to play the guitar. Right. But they just didn't pick up. There's something, um, I don't know, in order to be fun, you kind of need to take away some of the reality of these Mm. things, and it it does become quite hard. Well, everyone wants to be able to just get up and play Led Zeppelin solos after two minutes. You don't want to spend spend months and months of doing it, which is why, like, you know, then you really are just learning the guitar, so then it's not a game anymore. So it's, it's it's a hard balance, but... Yeah, no, there's definitely there's definitely something there. Cool. So that's uh, game consoles. Clearly, something I know nothing about. I'm d- I'm just a little bit um, fearful of getting. I see my little nephew playing them, and I'm just 
I'm just looking to shed things from my life, not looking to pick up things. I'm fearful of getting hooked to anything, so I try to stay clear away. So my memories of games are Space Invaders and Pac-Man and Phoenix and Asteroids. One day we'll get you hooked on something, one day. Please don't, <laughs> please don't. I need Maybe it'll be like Candy Crush or something. I, yeah, I'm scared. <laughs> I read how addictive these things are. I'm like, I just, I don't even try them, even though I should, you know, it's good for us to be across as much as we can. New inputs into the system. You, you can, you're the person that brings all the, um, you know, the exposure from that world. So I'll leave it at that. Um, another interesting story: Coin, which is a new product, um, seems to be taking off. I, I assume it's US only at the moment. Tell us what you know about Coin. So there's a few different, um, a few different startups in this space, and Coins, Coins just got a bit of popularity recently. Effectively, what they do is they replace all your credit cards with one bit of plastic. So say you have three or four cards in your wallet or, or five or six. Um, in theory, you can scan them all, take a picture of them, and they kind of virtually get uploaded to this single piece of plastic. And then there's a little button on it that you can press to change the card. And then you basically, um, if you're going to give uh, like a shop or somewhere your your credit card you just give them this piece of plastic and that works as your credit card and you press the button to choose what card you want so say you have like a work card and a personal card you can choose the work card and give that to them or change it to the personal card um, so in theory it's kind of replacing all your bits of plastic with one other bit of more intelligent plastic I love it but I think it should go one step further and I've always felt this for for many years before even the bloody iPhone existed they should have that, but it replaces all your cards, mm. not just great, your credit yeah. cards. That Train whether tickets it's and everything. Everything, yeah. whether it's your, um, you know, frequent flyer card mixed with your Medicare card mixed with just, you know, the technology has been there forever. Yeah. There, there just needs to be um, some innovative person that's, w that's willing to get past all the hurdles and reach some critical mass. And we're there. It's just ridiculous, you know. It is crazy, yeah. Yeah, no, it is It is something where the technology exists, but um, it's just a, <laughs> it's a bureaucratic nightmare to, to do. But somebody somebody should do it. So what's happening with Coin? It's it's taking off and it's... It's, it's taking off. People, I think, are very interested in the space. Um, that um, It's got a lot of traction on Kickstarter, so it's proven that the that, that consumers are interested. It's a little bit unknown whether it's going to be successful because... Um, you know, if you're a merchant and you accept this thing, then uh, you're actually more liable for things like chargebacks because you haven't actually seen the card in person. And quite a lot of people were saying, you know, if they were a business, they wouldn't accept this for that reason. Um, and obviously, it doesn't actually have your card number and stuff, so you can't actually purchase stuff online unless you remember it. There's there's sort of that element of it too. Um, those are those all seem like pretty small hurdles, though. They are small hurdles to to a degree. Uh, I mean, I think the whether whether merchants accept it though is is a larger hurdle. I mean, there's definitely you probably only need like one one person to have a fraudulent transaction and make the business owner annoyed at them to to them enforce you know a stricter policy on on cards. Um, and, and in theory, these things actually can facilitate skimming as well. Mm. So you could take somebody's card and you can skim it. Um, uh, in that they say they have protection, but there's only so much protection you, you can do on that. So. Um, yeah, it's all it's all a bit um, it's all a bit unknown, but it's definitely a space that's that's finally starting to get some traction and grow a little bit. So, um, and if it and if something like this actually got the approval from you know a few of the major banks in the U.S. and um, major merchants, then that could really kickstart it to push it you know really m much much further than it is now. 
My card um, earlier this year was, um, I don't know if it was a skimming, but it was definitely someone um, mm. got, you know. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Buying buying stuff in different parts of the States and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was in New York, and then suddenly the, all these transactions from um, Georgia started coming through from restaurants and... Um, I don't know. I don't know how it happened, or if people just replicate the card somewhere else, and it it all it all happened pretty quickly. I mean, Amex yeah. were really good. It's it's pretty it's pretty easy to do. I mean, you can very easily take an imprint, and you know, a shop owner or just a rogue employee could do it fairly easily. But yeah, at least there's the charge chargeback protection. So you, you, as a consumer, you can almost always get your money back. What I found interesting from a from a sort of anthrop you know social anthropological perspective is. They were just buying things. They were clearly going to restaurants and having meals. You know, like yeah, that is strange. Why wouldn't they buy? Why wouldn't they go to a shop and buy thousand dollar purchases or something? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. I just, it just didn't like. You know, I Unless understand restaurants are relatively expensive, and maybe it was just people that just get a thrill out of it. I just couldn't under- to go through all that trouble and put yourself at risk to go get a free meal for you and your mates. Well, unless they just have a huge collection of the stuff that they just flick through and it's just every single thing they purchase just gets put on it and you, you just happen to put on some meals or something like that. Maybe it's, you know, maybe they, yeah, don't know. Maybe they, maybe they really didn't care. It's just like a mundane thing for them. Yeah. And, and also these restaurants, I would imagine, have cameras and you would imagine that they can... You, you know, thought so, yeah. They, they were quite big brand name restaurants, so mm. I'm pretty sure their security... But, and Amex wouldn't tell me how they did it or what's going to happen to them. They said we don't release information. So, yeah, so nothing, basically. <laughs> no, nothing. So, yeah. But yeah, look, interesting. The, the payment space is, is a fantastically interesting space. There's definitely a lot of room for innovation, both on the consumer side and the merchant side, to accept. I mean, in, we've spoken about it before in Australia, to accept payments online is a very immature space. Um, have there been any changes since um, Braintree has been purchased by PayPal. I mean, we use Braintree on Manage Flitter. It was nearly a billion dollar acquisition by PayPal of um, Braintree. Uh, no, not, not not as far as I can see. It still, still seems pretty much the same as it was before the purchase. Um, uh, there was something that they, they rolled out recently. Um, it was like a new mobile app or something to that effect, but yeah, no, no huge changes. And of course, Bitcoin is still around and is fluctuating going crazy. wildly, yeah. going crazy. Up and to 600, up to se- almost 700, yeah. And um, the ex-Fed Reserve guy, Bernard Bernanke, um, said something this week that gave it credibility. That said we should see, mm. I can't remember his exact words, but it was something like, um, it's worthwhile looking at this seriously. Yeah. And of course, that everyone got really excited Just because, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, these guys are intrinsically conservative in many ways. And um, if they say... Yeah, this, uh, you know, um, we, we need to revisit that and, and get another expert. And we spoke about it a little while back, but it was still early days. And I think it's 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 getting more mainstream adoption. Um, that's it for news this week. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. Um, and we're going to chat to Parmi Olson, who's a technology writer for Forbes magazine in San Francisco in Silicon Valley. She's the, also the author of We Are Anonymous. Have you heard of the book, We Are Anonymous? No, I haven't, but I have to check it out. Yeah, it looks looks really interesting. It's all about the you know uh, um, hacker collective anonymous, and she uh, apparently did some really interesting. And I think I think it took a year or a year's mm, worth of research. Yeah. So I found that topic quite uh, quite entertaining. 
It is it is quite interesting. Vigilante justice with yep. the with with the new flavor. It's it's a very slippery slope though. You know, vigilante justice. You got it's 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 there's a fine line. One person's vigilante justice is another person's crime, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um anyway, we're gonna be, be chatting to her about uh messaging apps, so stay with us and we'll come back to you after the break. The It's a Monkey Podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. You're back with Kevin Garb on the It's a Monkey Podcast. Now, going back a few years in the internet, we were... Uh, using ICQ if you're old enough to remember then we we're using MSN Messenger and um, and it's gone full circle where there's a lot happening in the messaging space um, Snapchat of course is uh, getting courted left right and center at crazy valuations and I read an interesting article um, recently in The Guardian which I think was syndicated from Forbes and I, I tracked down the author um, which I'm happy to say I've got the end of the at the end of my Skype line. Parmi Olson, thanks very much for joining us on the Intermonkey podcast. Hi, thank you. Um, just to just to contextualize you, you are the um, t- uh, technology writer for Forbes magazine, and you're also the author of the book We Are Anonymous, which um, seems very interesting. Haven't haven't yet had a chance to look at it. I'll, I'll add it to my pile. Thank you very much. Um, so. D- your, your article about uh, was titled Teenagers Say Goodbye to Facebook and Hello to Messenger Apps. A lot happening in the messaging space at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, and this is something that's been brewing for a few years, but I think only in the last year or so it's really started to get some attention, if even in the last few months. And I think partly that's because of the huge kind of eye-popping valuations that we've seen for Snapchat, which is this service that you send photos to uh, your friends and the photo will self-destruct after a few seconds. Um, and the idea of that was kind of uh, people thought that was really strange when it first came out. And it's um, really, I think, taken the technology community and the investment community out here in Silicon Valley by surprise at how many users um, have adopted um, or are using that that service. Um, and the latest was that, uh, you know, the, the, the valuation that was put on Snapchat was something like, uh, you know, two billion people were talking about two billion, three billion dollars. And then the latest news earlier this week was that Facebook um, reportedly tried to buy Snapchat and offered three billion dollars uh, for the company or valued the company at that that amount, and they rejected the offer. So it's a really um, gutsy move on the part of the founders. But that in itself, I think, um, speaks to the fact that the people behind this app um, really see a big future for mobile messaging. Um, it's kind of this this new wave of social networks, essentially. I think for Facebook, um, I'm not sure if you would agree that it's very much a defensive play that they just don't want anyone else to get hold of Snapchat. That would make a lot of sense. And people say that's what happened in the acquisition of Instagram as well. They saw similar things happening there. But there's only so much you can do to try and... Um, you know, take all the different pieces off the chessboard to stop other people from winning. I mean, you've got to also innovate. And Facebook itself tried to come out or did come out with a product that's exactly like Snapchat called Poke um, earlier this year. 
and it just hasn't received the same kind of traction that Snapchat has. And I think a big reason for that is because at the end of the day, the big looming company behind Poke is still Facebook. And I think a lot of this new demographic, this new generation of people who are using these messaging, uh, messenger apps, messaging apps, um, are teenagers. And yes, they were the people who kind of helped to pioneer Facebook in the first place. But in the last few years, Facebook has also become a place where your mom and your grandmother and your aunts and um, your whole family is there watching what you say, spamming your Facebook wall with uh, kind of dorky internet memes and inspirational quotes. And I think it's really put a lot of younger people off of going on to that site anymore. So what it seems that young people are, sorry, no, I was just going to say what it seems that young people are kind of after uh, more are more kind of private um, opportunities to communicate. And um, perhaps we can get into this later, but this more ephemeral quality to messaging. So um, there doesn't have to be a trace of what you said. That's why they like uh, Snapchat so much. And, and as you mentioned in your article, that Facebook's definitely a victim of its own success and, and in that people are, and the teenagers, you know, having to, to restrict their own contributions to Facebook because it's, it's, even though it's still not open, but by virtue mm-hmm. of the critical mass of having their moms and their aunts, it's, it's definitely has a chilling effect on, on their speech. I've even noticed with my own Facebook use compared to the early days when I had a few friends mm-hmm. and now where I've got you know very far-reaching acquaintances um i i I definitely uh, am more measured in what i put on my page right yeah same same with me you know when i first joined it was like you're sharing something with friends and now you're like broadcasting because there's so many people well i mean it depends how many people you have on your on your friends list but it's just a different kind of feeling i think when you put up the status update um and i think a lot of uh, people are getting turned off by that for sure I think, you know, Evan Williams from Twitter said something very interesting in a talk. It was a blog post. I can't remember one of the two. And he said, mm-hmm. he said successful technology plays, are actually, all they're doing is mimicking what happens in real life. And that was... <laughs> That's that, interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it's almost, when you, when you hear that, it's almost too simplistic. And you think, well, you know, because there's yeah. all these technology layers and, and deep tech and big data and all these. But if you look at um, Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and WhatsApp, and, and, and in a way, it is mirroring how we communicate in real life. When we talk to someone, we don't want a permanent record of it. And sometimes mm-hmm. we do yeah. talk to groups and sometimes we do broadcast things. Or, or So it, it was, it's a very interesting metaphor that um, I'm holding yeah. on to when thinking about building out our own products. It's funny what you mentioned that and also people not wanting a permanent record. There's this um, kind of ethos that's going around for a few entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley, this idea that um, data or deleting doesn't have to be um, the default, or sorry, data existing doesn't have to be default. It could be turning that the other way around. We're so used to everything we say um, being recorded on Facebook or on, you know, our even on our text messages, you can scroll back through all the text messages you've ever sent to someone. Um, and so that's just the default is for what we say to still be in the cloud and just building up into this huge, enormous cache of everything that everyone's ever said online. Um, and there's this move towards, um, you know, communicating in such a way that actually the default is that everything is deleted. And the only time you actually want to 
store something, you actively opt in to say, say when you're texting with someone, they send you your address or they, you ask for an address, they send it to you, and then you ask for that to be saved. Um, and that's the case with a couple of messaging apps that are like Snapchat, but for text, there are, there are a few that are coming that have come out in the last few months that have actually um, gained a lot of traction um, where you send someone a text message and the text message deletes itself after about eight seconds. Um, and that's where deleting the data is the default. And of course, all of these services have 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 um, pushed the word ephemeral back up in, <laughs> into usage, where no one yeah. no no one would be using the word ephemeral. And now, especially in tech circles, um, it's dropped quite a lot. Absolutely, I was just saying that. I was just discussing that with one of these, um, yeah, the founder of uh, Frankly. It's a, a mobile app that sends uh, ephemeral text messages to each other, to uh, between people, and we were both saying that nobody even, you know, half the people who use the word now probably didn't didn't know what it meant a few years ago. But uh, absolutely, it's coming into kind of it's becoming a jargony term because it's, you know, I think we're at this point now where people are becoming much more aware of leaving a leaving a trail, and particularly um, anybody below the age of 21 who hasn't started a career yet. And they're at that point where they're going to be looking for jobs. And that idea in the back of their mind, they've got this digital trail on Twitter and Facebook and the college or university administrations officer is going to be checking up on them, um, on who they are, and despite what they might have put in their resume or personal statement. And so I think there's going to be, you know, you talked about um, technology that mimics what happens in real life. I think there is definitely this move towards communicating in such a way that you know, in the same way that when we have a conversation, um, we remember certain things that were said within the conversation. Our brain naturally doesn't record everything that happens. Um, and so you would think by extension, um, the way we communicate digitally would also not record every single thing, but only remember uh, the important things. And perhaps we'll be moving more and more in that direction in the coming years be great if there was intelligence in these apps, uh, whether it's our email or our um, text messages or our WhatsApp that would really, with 99.9% .9 accuracy, know what we wanted saved and what we wanted deleted. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, same with uh, photo apps, right? I mean, um, you take a photo on your iPhone, and today I think we're all just kind of accustomed to, you don't just take one, you take three or four or five, especially if you have kids, you'll take 20. Um, and by the end, you've got, after the course of a month, thousands of photos. And who really kind of goes um, diligently through all their photo albums and picks the ones that were important and the ones that they liked? So we're kind of overwhelmed by this glut of data, of photos, of text, of everything else. Um, and so I think for now we're at this stage where we... Um, the technology is being created where we opt in um, to saving data, saving things that we actually want. Um, and perhaps over time, you know, I like that idea of, of apps becoming more intelligent. Um, you know, the technologists and the engineers, um, the artificial intelligence engineers would figure out a way to, um, for apps to learn what kind of data we want to save and to do things like suggest um, data for saving or suggest photos that we want to keep. I've noticed that um, WhatsApp has uh, opened up an API, which I wasn't aware of. Yeah, that's a really interesting development for them. And I was um, just talking with them actually about that um, over the last couple of weeks. And 
Um, they're being quite quiet about it. This is very typical of WhatsApp. They're a really unusual company in that they don't court press at all, and they don't. They never put out press releases, and they're just super, super secretive. Um, but they're huge. They've got more than 350 million monthly active users, which is more than Twitter. And they're just, uh, you know, I think more than 95% of all smartphones in Spain have WhatsApp. And so it's kind of initially it's a texting tool, and now um, it's becoming more and more um, like Facebook in a way that you can uh, share. Um, you know, you, you go to somewhere like BuzzFeed, and you look at an article, and at the top there's share through Facebook through Twitter, and now there's also a little green button that says you can share it through WhatsApp. And you can, it just takes out that little bit of friction that there was before to have to copy and paste the URL into your WhatsApp conversation. Now these other properties on the web are integrating the WhatsApp um, you know, like button, as it were, or share button um, onto their web pages. And that, I think, is a real indication of how um, uh, one of the biggest messaging apps, if not the biggest messaging app, um, is becoming much more of a presence, not just for communicating, but for sharing and moving towards becoming almost like a social network. What's interesting about WhatsApp is they also have committed to um, not going down the advertising model path, which I personally find very interesting because advertising path is a very low-picking fruit for these scalable um, you know, businesses. But yet I still mm-hmm. feel that, that there are so many unexplored business opportunities and, and so much innovation still left to be able to innovate on these platforms in a non-advertising um, method. I'm personally disappointed that Twitter didn't explore more of these non-advertising based um, approaches. And WhatsApp, I think they're on record saying that they, uh, unless I'm confusing them with Evernote or maybe both of them are saying that they, they, they're mm-hmm. not going to go down the advertising route. Oh, yeah. No, they've, they've been very clear on that from the very, very beginning. Um, they they hate adverti- they hate advertising. They don't want to have anything to do with it, and uh, they really just see themselves as a kind of straight communication tool, almost like people talk about mobile carriers like um, AT and T and whoever else is being dumb pipes for connectivity. Well, WhatsApp kind of sees itself as this kind of service just to connect people, and they don't want advertising to be in the way or compromise people's privacy. So they make money um, by subscription. So people pay um, a pound in the UK or a dollar in the US per year to keep up to keep using the app. Um, and as far as we know, they say on their website that they're profitable. So that business model so far um, is working for WhatsApp and is sustainable. Um, now you talk about innovative, innovative um, business models. Some of these other messaging apps like KakaoTalk, um, in particular of South Korea and WeChat of China, um, are making money by creating a platform for selling apps and stickers. Um, and it sounds kind of silly, but actually um, some of these companies like uh, another messaging service, um, Line from Japan, um, make something like 20% of their revenue just from selling digital stickers um, on their platform. So, you know, these, you kind of, it's almost incorrect to call them messaging services because they're really almost like platforms in themselves where you can play games um, and you can buy stickers and um, avatars and um, celebrities have a presence on some of these sites and some of these um, apps. Um, and that's how they're making money. So it's all kind of people like WhatsApp and, and Line and Kakao are exploring these different um, business models. And it'll be really interesting to see um, which one uh, ends up being the one that helps make the multi-billion dollar messaging app company. Because at the moment, it's still like 
Um, there's so many different messaging apps out there, um, and there isn't one really big one in the same way that Facebook is the big one for social networks. I mean, what's interesting as well, and I think you made this point in the article, is traditionally, um, you know, Asia has copied some of the Silicon Valley products, whether it's, um, you know, Twitter or Facebook. But now some of the the Asian-founded products are starting to penetrate into Europe Mm. and and other markets. Right. But it's hard. Um, I mean, Europe, for sure. Um, But the U.S. is, um, I mean, like, for instance, Line of Japan is, making a lot of headway in Spain. Um, but the U.S. is a really tough market to crack, and it's actually the one big market that um, all the messaging apps want to crack and haven't been able to. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why. I've been told that part of the reason that messaging hasn't really taken off in the U.S. yet is people here are just so used to SMS, and also American technology consumers like a, prefer a really simple service that just what does one thing really well for them to start off with. And that's why Snapchat is perhaps the first messaging app to really gain a lot of traction here. Um, But yeah, an Asian um, WeChat is uh, of China, the messaging platform from from China. They've got an office in the U.S. now, and they're trying to break into the U.S. Um, Line also has um, a CEO in the U.S. uh, and an office here. Um, their U.S. CEO um, spent uh, worked out of Hollywood for a long time. They're trying to build up these celebrity partnerships, but really, who knows if that will get anywhere. Um, WhatsApp is actually based um, here in California, um, but again, the U.S. isn't a massive market for them, um, not like some of the other markets that they're in. What what I find interesting as well on uh, you know Twitter and Facebook and and um, you know that Twitter haven't built out their DM service, I, I see it as such a low picking fruit. I've said it a few times, you know, and, and, it's, and it's loosely related to the messaging, but perhaps more related to the email, oh, side, of, uh, the email yeah. side of things. And, and even Facebook not promoting the fact of their messaging service and building that out into a Gmail killer. I'm, I'm a little bit confused why both of those companies don't build out those relevant sides of their services. Yeah, you know, and it would make perfect sense. I mean, some companies have done that. Big companies have tried to bring out messaging services, if that's what you're referring to, um, going beyond email to just kind of a mobile messenger. Um, so actually WeChat, I think, came out of Tencent. It's not that it necessarily came from a particular um, like email uh, service, but it's, it's, it's on the heels of a, of a big internet giant. And um, Facebook Messenger, which is actually very popular here, is, is part of, of Facebook. But I think um, it's just hard for these big companies that have entrenched ways of working and entrenched business models and products to think about pivoting and um, being mobile first. There's, that's kind of the big buzzword here in Silicon Valley is you want to be born on mobile. And that's why a lot of these apps like Snapchat or WhatsApp or you know any other app like Waze, for instance, the car navigation service, you know, they've got so successful in mobile because they started off on mobile and they built their user interface for a mobile screen and they understand how mobile works better than someone that's coming from a desktop background. It's definitely uh, bold to be the person to knock back a $3 billion acquisition. I mean, that's that's quite something. Yeah, um, it's kind of, people are, were really shocked here when um, when they read that story um, but again, anybody who um, 
who works in the messaging space, like some of the entrepreneurs who are in that space, really kind of understand why Evan Spiegel did that um, because it, there's just so much potential in that market. Um, and you know how we were um, talking about some of these apps being not just messaging services. It's not just about texting. It's about playing games and um, you know, sharing stickers and sharing photos and how these are becoming platforms in themselves, um, which almost sit on top of um, you know, the, the established operating systems like the iOS OS that you have on your iPhone or Android that you would have on your Samsung or HTC device. Um, and so for some, I think some of these messaging platforms actually see themselves as not only social networks, but um, another jargony term in, in, in Silicon Valley is ecosystems. They see themselves as the future ecosystems of mobile. Um, so, you know, it's all sounds a bit hyperbolic and um, grand, but there are those kinds of very, very multi-billion dollar ambitions uh, among some of the people in this in this industry, in the messaging platform industry, to really be um, the future ecosystems on mobile. Very interesting to um, to follow, but I you know I wish one of these companies. That's why I was interested to to see WhatsApp's opened up their API. I don't know how restrictive or open it is, but I it would be wonderful if one of these companies had the confidence that Twitter had in the very very early days for a totally open API. That's when mm -hmm. I think really interesting innovation happens but they all they all got frightened by twitter's experience and having to pull pull back their ecosystem back in but um, mm -hmm. it would be wonderful if some of these messaging services just just open it up and and really you know whatsapp if they keep it really open and aligned their ecosystem with their own um with their own goals and and could monetize their their api or, or some way I, I i i think that's where the real gold with the, this innovation happens is is when this uh, when, when this this really um arm's length collaboration happens you know magic really comes to light i mean the, the innovation that happened in the early days in the twitter api was quite remarkable mm -hmm. so what kind of innovation do you think would happen with them if, if say a mobile messenger a messaging platform opened up fully opened up their api I'm curious, actually, what kind of what do you think could happen as a result? I haven't uh, I haven't totally reflected on it, but I guess what I've noticed when uh, you know APIs are open and you know there's all these edge use cases that come into play. I mean, who knows? Maybe people are using WhatsApp for project management. Maybe they're using it for mm -hmm. couples counseling. Maybe they're using it for disaster management. Maybe for sharing images um, in, in real estate. I'm not quite sure, you, you know, but. Um, um, evolving, spinning off apps around this that could that could really be solving very specific use cases in very um, you know well executed manners. Um, I guess we don't yeah. know what we don't know, and that's what's the the nice humility around opening your APIs in a way is that you don't know what you don't know. You don't know all your use cases, and you just throw it at th throw it out you know to the universe and and see what people come up with. Right, right, and I, I've heard. Speaking of use cases, I heard that in Hong Kong, um, people are already using WhatsApp to book um, book tables at a at a restaurant. So well, restaurants have um, a presence on WhatsApp, and you just text them through WhatsApp and book your table. 
Well, there, there you go, you know, evolving into, as you say, mu much more of a platform. And um, because companies can only innovate so far and as they necessarily get bigger, all of the, 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 the it starts gumming up the, um, the momentum of all of this. But they, mm -hmm. they, get, they get scared that, um, that their core offering is going to be eroded. And um, I, I, know, I know Pinterest, I think this week or last week, released their API mm -hmm. um, for the first time, opened up their API. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Oh, I hadn't, I hadn't reported on that. But yeah, that's interesting that they're doing that. It's, it's taken them that long. And I know they've got an ex-Twitter guy who's managing um, that side of things. So obviously bringing in their experiences. But um, definitely an yeah. interesting space uh, to watch. Um, Pami Olsen, technology writer for Forbes magazine, also the author of We Are Anonymous, which perhaps is a, a, a chat for another interview, which I'd love to talk <laughs> with you about. It's uh, filled sure. with intrigue. Really appreciate your time. It's, it's always great to talk with someone who's who's in the valley and passionate about technology i can sense i can sense in your voice that you love this uh, you love this stuff yeah no it's it's really fun also um <laughs> you certainly you're right about that it's, it's really fun to be watching this stuff and uh especially meeting the entrepreneurs i mean some of these guys have um crazy ambitious plans and it'll be really interesting to see which ones actually end up um ruling the space and women as well yeah, yeah, true, true. We'd like to see more of those, but uh, it's happening. There was actually, I saw a, um, an article today that there's a brand new, it's, it's still small, they've only raised $20 million, but there's a woman's only VC company that has started, I think, three, three founding partners. Um, All right. Which, which is quite interesting. Not, not, to, not to say that, um, you, you know, that's, that's the answer to everything, but it's, it's, it's definitely good to get some, some balance in the ranks. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you just look at studies, um, it's like uh, in terms of women in the workplace, Silicon Valley, Santa Clara County, which is where kind of Silicon Valley is, um, it's just on, compared to the rest of the United States, women on uh, um, a corporate boards and in the C-suite um, are just really, really a small proportion of, of that area of the workforce. Um, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with where the money's going. So certainly, um, you know, women being better represented in venture capital would help, um, you know, encourage more of those female entrepreneurs and, uh, and women to, to come to the fore and bring their ideas up. Yeah, definitely. Balance balance uh, helps us all. New, new perspectives. So, um, yeah, Pami Olsen, sure. really appreciate it. We'd love to talk to you more uh, on another occasion. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Bye bye. Sure. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use Check Dog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. James, are you a Snapchat user? You don't strike me as the sort. No, I, I'm not a Snapchat user, but I am a WhatsApp user. I use WhatsApp an awful lot. What do you use it for? Who do you talk to? So all of my friends are on WhatsApp, but they're not on. Most of them aren't on Facebook, and they're not on Facebook. Very few are on. Only two are on Twitter. They're not on Facebook. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I, uh, at least between my friends, I have much much larger adoption of WhatsApp than um, than Facebook or Twitter. Wow, that's um, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I I use I've got a couple of friends mainly in the US that I WhatsApp with because it's convenient and time zones. But I don't know. A lot of people seem to use WhatsApp a lot more than I do. They've got groups of friends and they have they organize things on there and it's it's. You know, the, re- the reason is is that it's basically, um, it's just a sort of a natural evolution of SMS, really. And it's kind of, you know, people, everyday people, I think, were really, you know, brought up on SMS and, um, you know, the convenient of sort of these short messages between people. And um, I think Twitter was kind of one take on an evolution of it. But WhatsApp is with a more direct take. It really is just, you know, a cheaper, faster, um, you know, more flexible version of SMS, really. And that's how an awful lot of people use it. Um, and you know, so it's got you know the group chatting, and it's got um, images in there as well. And yeah, no, it's just it's it's a lot like Snapchat in some ways. Um, but it's not ephemeral. No, no, which I like. I, I kind of like being able to go back through the stuff. It also saves any images people send to your local, at least on the iPhone, to your local uh, photo library, which is pretty cool. So you kind of. Uh, so, for example, when I got married recently, everybody was kind of sharing the photos of the wedding and they were automatically kind of going to my own photo album, my own library, because I was getting everybody's photos coming through. Um, so, which, you know, hasn't really been, been possible with any apps before. You know, even on Facebook, it's kind of still isolated and it's not really a group type thing. So, yeah, it's very different kind of group group conversation. Yeah, apparently 70% of Snapchat users are women. Mm. Um, which is interesting. I wonder, uh, maybe because it's they they like the more. Got to be careful what I say here. <laughs> got to be very careful Thank what I say here. But um, look, they maybe they like more the social type discussion that's more sensitive. I mean, I'm stereotyping like mad. Okay, so don't shoot me down. <laughs> but I look. I don't know. The stats speak. I mean, you know, the stats there. Seventy percent more more women. Um, which is interesting. I've got two friends on Snapchat that yeah. send me regular messages. One is a friend in her early 20s and she sends me, you know, things from Halloween part and she probably sends it to all her friends on Snapchat and they, they're sort of randomish. They're mm. not particularly bad or provocative or anything. They just sort of, you know, day-to-day life. But yeah, probably on Facebook, they'd sort of look like that's a boring photo. Mm. Then I've got another friend who's a tech guy and I showed him Snapchat and somehow he he just every time he goes to the bathroom, he takes a photo of his shoes <laughs> and he sends them to me. I hope it's just the shoes. And it's just the shoes. He goes on the loo, you know. And uh, so once a week I get one of those. So great, you know, we got all this technology in the world and uh, this is what humans do with it. Um, yeah. Which brings me to just segueing a bit. There was an interesting article this week um, about social media. I actually put it on our internal Yammer that for the first time, porn is not the most um, mm. sort of the largest activity on the web. It's social media. Yeah, it takes most most time. Yeah, it's um, it's a good thing that. Yeah, it is. It's very very interesting. We're yeah. using the force for good. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Well, I did notice. Um, 
because uh, we have an affiliate with the program through Managed Flitter. I did notice there was um, one pornographic account, and the entire purpose of the account was to post pornographic messages and promote our affiliate program. So wow, maybe the maybe the industry is getting a bit scared, and they're trying to fight back a little bit. <laughs> yeah, look, and and I mean, Twitter's part they don't have against their terms of service. You're totally yeah. allowed to have. The only thing is, I think you can't have it in your profile pic or your bio. And you have to mark it, I think, if it's sensitive, and then that helps them. Like, I think if you post anything that's um, any nudity, then you have to have, like, the sensitive flag on there. You have to mark your account as sensitive. Otherwise, uh, you know, this stuff can go into the global stream, and that's how they kind of protect people by having this sensitive filter. Why, why wouldn't they? I mean, I, I don't know. I think if I was – and I'm not a particularly conservative guy, you know. I'm a respectful guy, but not – I mean, you know um, – I, I don't live in the dark ages and I don't know, but yet if I would have started Twitter and I'm Twitter, I, I don't know if I would allow um, porn stuff on, on, on that social media network. I just don't see, I know freedom of speech and blah, 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 but I just, I just, I personally, don't know. Personally, I don't have no issues with it. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, that there's there's a lot of people who, who are interested in that kind of stuff and it's, um, you know, if you look at Tumblr, it's a huge amount of their page views and their activity and, you know, this stuff can, can can kind of coexist to a point. I think, you know, a lot of the the US culture is to um, you know, to hide this stuff and to make, you know, there's no they have absolutely no issue with violence, but as soon as there's a bit of nudity then there's, you know, you know, the senses go crazy, that kind of stuff. And uh, maybe this is kind of almost a reaction to that, you know, all these you know, people are so limited by what they can do in public as soon as they have these anonymous forums where they can you know, share what they want and look at what they want without anybody judging them, then they, they take advantage of them. And any any channel that has that kind of combination of an, anonymity and the ability to, you know, post pictures, it's just, or even text, it's just, a, it's just you know, a, a magnet for this kind of um, activity. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, as long as it's, you know, there's obviously some stuff like child pornography and exploitation, which is bad, but, um, you know, the average stuff, it's, it's you know, it's an industry and whatever. Well, what about when your seven-year-old kid comes to you and says, "Daddy, I want to join Twitter." <laughs> it's it's fine, you know. Yeah, I, I'll well, chat to you. You know, they've got to be exposed to it at some point. Yeah, so. I don't know. You know, I mean, I hear you, but that that that's where I think that. I'm with Jimmy. I'm I'm on the liberal attitudes towards this stuff. So. <laughs> you, you see, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you when you have kids. We'll see. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, we're, you know, kids are very vulnerable. Their innocence deserve they deserve all to have their innocence. And um, you know, stumbling onto stuff on Tumblr and Twitter, and like I, that, that's where I think I've got the issue is this, the mixture of it all. I got no issue with you know x-rated stuff per se but i just if you know it's it's easy just to stumble across the stuff i mean that's the whole problem with the web in general though you know it's it's yeah. it's it's you're only two clicks away from something you really don't want to see most of the time yeah it, it is easy it is easy to stumble across this stuff um but at least as long as you're not looking most of the time, it doesn't come up. Most of them, like, you know, they have this sensitive filter. So if you go searching for something, you're not going to see it unless you, you know, unless you're explicitly, you know, marking it as being okay to see this stuff. And, um, and yeah, for the most part, it, it, it kind of gets excluded. Like, I don't often sort of come across stuff, you know, just in my day-to-day brow. Or maybe I'm just desensitized to it, so I just forget <laughs> about it. I don't know. I also, no, look, I also <laughs> don't really come across day-to-day, you know, on, on Twitter. because um, Just, I actually don't see much of that at all on Twitter. So, it, yeah, definitely, it, it's working. But um, Facebook, though, I think 
it's against their terms of service, nudity and things like that, I believe. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, they they always had that um, that that debacle or whatever. You know, people complained about it. Breastfeeding. Breastfeeding mothers and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that is still... I guess it still is the case. I don't know if you have like a private account or something whether you no, can do it. I don't uh, know. As far as I know, and I and as far as I know, there's no sort of X-rated stuff on, on you know, content allowed mm. on, on, on Facebook at all. So that's... That's um that is quite interesting and yeah it is interesting yeah but um I'm surprised someone hasn't started or maybe there is I don't know the, like a social media network for you know all this sort of X-rated stuff where they can all just hang out yeah, and go they wild have, they have it's called Tumblr activity I don't know what Mar- Marissa Mayo would um, would say about that. She was actually interviewed yesterday at the Dreamforce conference. You know, that's the big Salesforce conference they have twice a year. I think okay. it's twice no, a year. Um, and she spoke there. And Mark Benioff, the CEO of uh, Salesforce, said he was he was she was the person that he wanted the most to speak there. And she said. Mm. Um, what did she say? She's uh, First of all, she looked very tired. And secondly, she said, yeah, her, her main priorities at the moment are two things, Yahoo and her family. So it's um, a very safe answer. It is a safe <laughs> answer. But yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how their share price is doing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, know. Twitter. Speaking of share price, yeah, Twitter. I have to I have to say I'm surprised at that. I think I said last podcast to be surprised if the... It stayed above forty for a week, but it's still still hanging in there. It's, it's still just over forty. Yeah, let's it's what it's 41. about. So Twitter share price closed yesterday at forty one dollars and five cents, yeah. and Facebook closed at forty six dollars and forty three cents. Yeah, that's crazy. It's yeah. madness. It's right. just, I mean, five dollars difference, and you either got to buy Facebook or sell Twitter. Well, <laughs> I tell you what, I did. I bought Facebook. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, cool. I, bu- I bought some more at forty six dollars. Yeah, it's, it's I bought bet. some at twenty seven. I bought some at forty six. Cool. Um, I didn't. I didn't bet the farm. It's just a little. It's a little play. Just you know? a million dollars. Like I wish. <laughs> I wish. I, I tell you what. I wish I put. Uh, you know, if I million had. Uh, I wish I put a million or borrowed a million bucks to put on twenty seven. You know, um, hundred percent return. Not too bad. You know, although you got to share that with the the tax man. True, true. Which um, gets whacked. Anyway, that's it for episode number 30, Friday, 22nd of November. Please tweet us, email us if you're using this while you... If you're listening to us while you use Manage Flutter, I hope we've managed to keep you company. Oh, and the last thing as well, we hit 2 million users. Yeah, we did, finally. And um, yeah, someone won uh, an all expenses... Well, not all expenses, a ticket... One expense. Uh, one expense. <laughs> the biggest expense, <laughs> the expense to Australia. And thanks to everyone. If you, le- if you were the, one of the people that entered, um, thanks for entering. We had, uh, in the end, what, 1,500 entries? Yeah, about 1,500. Yeah. Um, then they uh, had to guess the number of followers of the uh, our two millionth u- uh, user. And it was, what was it? 8,756 or something? Somewhere around there. Sounds about right, yeah. And that was the number of followers. And um, and Reverse Wine Snob, Twitter account Reverse Wine Snob, mm-hmm. he specializes in blogging about wines less than $25, oh, I think. Cool. Um, he won. We'll see if we can get him some, some cheap wines when he comes over. Well, he's definitely coming to the right country. I mean, there's a lot of cheap wines. Yeah, you get great yeah, wines in Australia for 10 bucks. So, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, well, thanks for everyone for entering and uh, great milestone for us. And hopefully on to the next 2 million users. When we have our first 2 million paid users, that's when the real party is <laughs> going to happen, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Go to Vegas for that one. 
Um, anyway, thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Have a good one.